We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. That's it? That's all you got in you? It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Heading into the last long weekend, unofficially, of the summer of 23. Here we are. Not a lot going on. And, uh, you know, that kind of makes it hard for uh, the great people like Will and Jordan who uh, and Tom and, and, and the rest that produce the, these shows and try to, to dig up guests and such. But you know what? That's probably a good thing, right? It is a Friday heading into a long weekend. Really? Do we need any sort of drama? Uh, okay, here's the best I can do. The Canadian economy slowing. All right, there's a happy... Uh, Here's a happy headline. Uh, the GDP is down uh, a little bit. Uh, Canadian Revenue Agency, the tax people, have fired 120 employees for mis- misuse of the CERB funds, wrong- wrongfully giving it to people who shouldn't have had it uh, with your money and your public payouts. This well, of course, the Prime Minister has hired another 30% and grown the public se- uh, sector, federal public sector, uh, over 30% since his time in office. There you go. All right, and have a Canadian's living pay- Paycheck to paycheck. Uh, and like I need to tell you anything more about that. We certainly know the situation and the fight between the federal government and Meta and and, and, and other uh, social media uh, pages. And the issue is that um, traditional media lose in dough because lots of people go uh, onto the information highway to see these uh, these uh, these articles, these posts, uh, which really direct you back to the site. But traditional media hasn't been able to monetize that, whereas obviously Twitter has. And, um, you know, the result is traditional media losing money and 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 Twitter or sorry, the social media not. And therefore, government wants them to pay for it. That's not the model that these social media pages are it's an information highway they don't create content people put stuff on it so the government wanting to to be uh, the the news agencies to be reimbursed for that and you can certainly see why um, uh, but at the end of the day, Facebook said, it's not our model. It's not what we do. So if you don't want us to use it, we just won't use it. And then, of course, forest fires start or any other disaster like this where people depend on communication, whether it's social media, radio, what have you. And uh, there was uh, Facebook stopped putting the stuff up. Meta stopped putting, stopped putting Canadian news up there. So people were stuck. And what it has done is is put a focus on what the importance of radio is and how it has got us through various uh, crisis strategy, uh, tragedy in our time over the years, whether it's 9-11, whether it's global pandemic, whether it is wildfires. Uh, what is the importance? Is this highlighted? Will it change the discussion in any way? Let's bring in Gordon Gow, Director, Faculty of Arts, Media Tech Studies, MTS, uh, and Professor, Faculty of Arts, Sociology Department, uh, University of Alberta, and with us now, Gordon, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you for having me. So how bad an issue was this, Gordon, for people? How how stuck were they when all of a sudden you're looking for something and you can't find it? Well, I'm not sure how stuck people were, you know, practically speaking. I talked to a few people with the news block, and when the fire, I was actually in the Northwest Territories when the wildfire evacuation was was called, and I talked to a few people about it, and they said, yeah, we usually get our news on Meta or Instagram or Facebook and it's a, it's inconvenient, but I just go to the directly to the news source now. 
Mm. So uh, in some ways, I think, you know, the, the, the way the story was being reported may have made it seem much bigger than it, it is in terms of being able to access news. But, but where I, I really sort of reacted was, you know, this idea that, um, <laughs> that Meta or Facebook is the only game in town, right? And I'm yeah. thinking, well, no, I'm up in the Northwest Territories and, and I do have internet. I'm, I'm about a thousand kilometers north of Yellowknife in a fly-in community, and we happen to have internet because we've got satellite internet, but, but at the same time, you know, I had, I had radio, and I had radio all the time, and it was free, and all I had to do was just turn the radio on, and there it was, regular updates about the wildfires, about the evacuations, and I thought, you know what, we need to remind people that this technology is still here and it still plays a vital role, especially in these kind of situations. Do you think this was more about a movement to just put pressure on the cause, which was getting uh, Meta to pay for for this uh, for the use of this content? Do you think this? Because so, you're making it sound like it really it was an issue, but it wasn't really a big issue. People found the other sources; they went back to the original sources. So, is this maybe you know sort of like a campaign to put more pressure? On though and 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 draw attention to this campaign. I I don't know exactly what the motive is in in these stories, but I, certainly I know that um, uh, you know there's uh, there's a lot of concern among with those in the news industry that the block has happened and and that it's a lot harder. It's not harder, but it, it's not a lot harder. But it is maybe a little bit harder to find those news stories, and it's more difficult to share them with your friends and family if you can't simply share on the social media site. So I, I think there is a there is a real question there. Um, but I wonder, you know, even Meta themselves, you know, have said, well, people don't come to us for news. And that's a quote directly from Meta. So I'm not sure, you know, that that it's really as significant as the stories might lead us to believe. Um, and I think it's part of a larger sort of power play between the federal government and, and the social media giants about, you know, who's going to win this battle at the end of the day. Isn't that fascinating? That's an interesting way to look at it, Gordon. And I'm sure a lot of people didn't didn't think about that. Um, it's interesting now because now we're seeing uh, traditional media sites now, uh, tra- traditional media uh, uh, promote their sites. And, you know, here's, as you just said, go back to the original site. Everybody's got a website, blah, 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 blah. It was just about putting that website on the information highway and such, which is what they did when the Internet first came out. But then... They stopped, but now it appears they're doing that again, and they're seeing the value of doing it themselves as opposed to letting Facebook try to do it. Yeah. Well, you know, the sites have always been there. For example, in the Northwest Territories, Cabin Radio um, has a streaming um, radio service, but they also publish stories and updates on the wildfires on a regular basis. And they were being carried on Instagram and on Facebook, but they've been blocked just like everybody else. Um, and I think, you know, again, it's it's an inconvenience for people, but but for those um, who really need it, they can go right to those right to the source. Uh, what social media allows you to do is to, as I say, to share it with friends and family a lot easier. And that's become more difficult, um, but not impossible. And again, let's come back to this question of, you know, of, of radio and traditional technologies. Again, we, we don't want to forget that in the time of a crisis. You know, social media should not be your only source for information, mm-hmm. because if the Internet goes down, well, you, you know, uh, you've got to go somewhere else. And radio will quite often remain functioning, even when the rest of the infrastructure is down. 
Uh, if you're in an evacuation situation and you're moving from Yellowknife into Alberta, you may be out of range of cell phones. You may be out of range of Internet, but you still can probably turn your radio on in your car and pick up a signal and, and get the information you need. And importantly, of course, when things are happening quickly, you want reliable information. And um, one thing about over-the-air radio is that you have staff at these radio stations who can do fact-checking before they put that information on the air. And that's not always the case with social media, as we know. There's quite often um, either misinformation or, in some cases, you know, deliberate disinformation that's being um, shared on social media. And so it's always good to be double-checking or even triple-checking what you're hearing or reading, especially in a crisis situation, because, you know, lives matter, right? Gordon Gow with us, Director of Faculty of Arts, Media Tech Studies, MTS, and Professor of Faculty of Arts, Sociology Department, University of Alberta, the importance of radio, especially during times of disaster. Uh, Gordon, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Good luck. Thank you very much. I remember way back when, uh, when I was on 195, we did the first uh, Burlington Rib Fest broadcast from that and, and, and did a big deal on it and stuff. And I remember them saying, you know, hopefully this will be a big fundraiser for us and it will last a long time and be a memorable event because these things are starting to pick up uh, over North America. And this was really uh, the first, I believe, in this country. And they're still at it. So if you're on Burlington's waterfront down by Spencer uh, Smith Park, make sure you uh, check it on out. Uh, this weekend and just follow your nose because, man, it's a beautiful smell that pretty much uh, flow. Uh, it's not a forest fire. It's ribs, man. And to talk more about all of this, Brent uh, Pats is with us as well as Jay Brittle. And they are from the Rotary Rib Fest and are with us now. Thank you for the time, gentlemen. Hope you're doing well. Hey, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So what edition of the Rib Fest is this? And I'll throw this out to both of you and any, anyone who wants to answer can jump in. So it's our 26th, uh, it's our 26th year in the park in Spencer Smith Park. We did have uh, a little bit of applause uh, during COVID, uh, but we pivoted like most other uh, organizations did, and we ran a drive-through rib fest, very successful drive-through rib fest. But there's there's nothing beats a full-on rib fest in in the park on a Labor Day weekend. So how has attendance been post-pandemic? Because I'm, th- I'm if I remember correctly, last year was a boomer year for you. Yeah, yeah, no, it was. We, we were, I think we were over 150,000 last year and all signs pointing um, from all events that we've led this year all around other areas. It, everybody's setting records with attendance. People are definitely back out wanting to, to enjoy life again and do things uh, and have that normalcy. Back. So is everything back to normal for the Burlington Rib Fest as far as organization, sponsorship and such? Are you back where you were prior to the pandemic? Well, where we're standing right now, what we're seeing is organizationally, we're, we're back up. We're up to 16 rib teams. We've got about a dozen or so food vendors. Um, 21 bands this weekend, including a Friday night. Uh, we're doing a really uh, return to the 80s night tonight. We're really looking forward to that with uh, stock circle images and Vogue in the box this evening. Um, but yeah, like we're, we're, we're back to normal. We're up and running. People, you know, we've got full park and we're already seeing it this afternoon with the weather. The, we're doing a little bit better on a Friday afternoon than we would normally do on a Friday afternoon. So people are, people are out. They're looking forward to this. Yeah. And you know, as what's always important is the weather and it looks like you're in for a barn burner of a weekend uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So to someone who has never been to this rib fest, describe mm-hmm. it, tell them what they will see when they walk through the doors or the gates. Well, first you already hit on it earlier. So with the, with the smell. So where, however you're arriving from how far away, 
you're going to start smelling the ribs and the smoke instantly anywhere near the area. So as you come in, we've got a lot of different things for, for many different people, more than uh, we've had even in years past. We have a larger uh, Carnival Midway uh, this year with a big Ferris wheel and, and some uh, really good rides uh, that way. And uh, Brent already touched on the 80s night. It, it What it is, is this feeling is it, it's a buzz there you know it's just amazing watching it transform over the last week as we put all the pieces together and as now you start to see people in it and the energy that that's created there and the lake setting is what i think every other event like this wishes they had so we are very lucky in that in that regard so you've got the sun the smoke the sound uh, all the flavors you love of, of of any kind of fair that you've been to so that that's what i think the real drives and talk about some of these displays because i'll never forget you know you walk through there and it's just you you walk down a row of all of these people <laughs> who are from wherever and and they take this thing on the road they got the trophies out they're 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 very proud of what they do it's quite a show isn't it well it is quite a show they you know they 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 and the the rivers they know how to put on a show think think about it too but by, by the time they get to us they've been doing this since may Right, so they're they're at events and and they're crisscrossing. You, you got to give a give a handout to them because they, you know, they they go from our event all weekend. They pack up. They're driving across the province or another city, and then they're doing it all over again. And this starts for them early May, right through to you know October for a lot of them. And the energy level, it's it's amazing. You see how they are. You'd think it was early in the season the way some of them are, but you know they're excited. They're there. They're singing. They're getting you out there. It's sampling sauces. And uh, they're having a lot of fun, and that energy kicks over and spills out into the people in the lineups, and you, you don't seem to mind waiting around because you're watching a little bit of a sideshow. So it's awesome. And there certainly is lots of choice. <laughs> and go hungry, lots of course. Of uh, talk a little bit more about the entertainment because it seems like you've torqued that up this year. You know, we we used to have uh, in years past. We did have two uh, two stages. We did consolidate into the one large main stage uh, again this year and having our anchor at the other end being the, the larger and midway. So you have that. But with the with the musical entertainment, the 90s night really kicking that off this year uh, tonight. If you if you have no plans tonight, this is going this is the night um, you want to be down in, in there. We have. Uh, three good Canadian bands from that era. And and some of the times you hear the names, you're not quite sure. But once you hear the songs, you're like, yes, I, I completely remember that with the box, Chalk Circle and Images in Vogue. So that is for sure great. We do have Freedom Train. It's always a big draw for us. Uh, uh, Killing Time Band, always, uh, again, a crowd favorite. But interspersed, there's such a, a, an eclectic mix that people are amazed that and they end up staying for longer than they than they maybe even planned on. Right. And how many rivers this year? And I remember when this first started, uh, there weren't a lot of Canadians in it. It was mostly up from the south. But now it seems to be they're, they're taking off in Canada as well. well. It really has. We have 16 We have sixteen rib teams with us this year, which is up. We were, we were down around 12, 13. Last year, um, just coming out of COVID, we had 15. And this year, we're kind of back up to kind of where we're where we is a good number of 16, right? So you get, you get a, a little bit of variety. And, uh, and, and again, as I said, like these teams are crisscrossing the province and, and a lot of them are banned from either side of the country too. So yeah, Canadian, Canadian rib teams have really taken off in the past 25 years. And, and it's great. You know, it's great to see these guys, are, these guys are, uh, they work hard and they put out a really good product that people really enjoy, and they come out in droves. All right, give us the logistics, when, uh, where, all that stuff, when it's all happening. 
Well, we're here today, Friday. We started at, you know, we open at 11. We go to 11 o'clock tonight, tomorrow, Saturday, and Sunday, 11 to 11, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then we're going to be 11 to 7 o'clock on, on Labor Day Monday. So anybody who's going down to the uh, Labor Day Classic down there at Tim Hortons Field to see the Argos and the Tiger Cats, we've got dinner ready for you. And you can uh, take it home, and then the kids, you know, the kids can all go back to school on Tuesday with a little bit of rib uh, rib leftovers for their lunch, and uh, not a not a bad way for them to start the school year, I tell you. You'll probably smell it from the stadium, no doubt. You'll see the cloud, you know. There you go. All right. Uh, thank you, Brent and Jay. Good luck with this year's edition. It's the Burlington Rib Fest down at Spencer Smith Park all weekend long. Just follow the smell. It's an incredible event and bigger and better than ever. Thank you, gentlemen. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. We were talking about this months ago, and then, of course, um, like all things, it seems, in this country, it disappears off the radar, and nobody gives a, a darn about it anymore. But but we remember way back when, when conservative uh, member of parliament, Michael Chong, was being harassed by the Chinese Communist Party in regard to election interference. And it was investigated. He was briefed by CSIS and such. And a public inquiry was to be called. You remember the whole David Johnson thing. And now crickets. We don't know what's going on with that. Uh, and it seems like the United States is a little bit more interested in this matter than what we are. Uh, because member of parliament Michael Chong is now going to head to the United States for a congressional executive commission on China. The commission says it's in a meeting amidst China's systematic attempt to rewrote the global norms and wants to hear, uh, Michael Chong and, and his story. However, it's sad when you think about it. They appear more interested in this than what we do. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. And he is near, uh, here now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. Reggie, it's non-Trump here this time, so that's kind of cool. Uh, what exactly is the Executive Commission on China, the Congressional Executive Commission on China? What's this about? So it's a committee that's been in place since um, since 2000, so 23-ish uh, years old. And it was set up initially um, having to do with whether or not the U.S. was going to enter into you know a, a, a normalized trade relationship with China. And the reason for the committee was to ensure that the United States could still investigate or have a legislative mechanism available to it uh, to be able to go into and look at uh, human rights issues or other matters that were going on in China, especially if the U.S. was going to find itself more aligned with uh, Beijing. And over the years, over the decades since this uh, committee was created, it has resulted in um, in the U.S. being able to carry out these investigations uh, to what they believe may be problematic human rights conditions throughout the country. Look, China doesn't like this committee. They don't find that the U.S. it's within kind of the U.S. wheelhouse. But at the end of the day, the U.S. sees it as important because uh, it, it's a way for it to kind of have checks and balances when it comes to you know the relationship, however tenuous it is with China. So why is the United States interested in hearing from uh, MP Michael Chong? Well, I mean, look, it was earlier this year. It happened in the U.S. It happened in Canada where these, you know, secret police stations were put in place. One was found uh, in New York City, you know, believed to be put in place by uh, by Beijing or by the Chinese government as a way to intimidate people on American soil. Uh, and, you know, this this kind of transnational repression um, that's being pushed back against by the government in Canada, by the government uh, in the United States, is uh, is at the crux of this. And look, Michael Chong is somebody who has spoken out against human rights concerns in China, namely 
the situation involving uh, Uyghurs, which has resulted in himself being targeted. Uh, and the United States sees that it can happen in other countries. And they're using this as a way to kind of steer a conversation into what could be looked at. You know, Chong is not the only person who's going to be testifying here. There are others that have to do, um, you know, with China or China experts or experts having to do with the Uyghur situation. But at the end of the day, the United States has made it clear under Joe Biden uh, and under Donald Trump that it would push back against an increasingly aggressive Beijing. And by inviting people from around the world who have been targeted by Beijing, it gives them an opportunity, lawmakers an opportunity, the public an opportunity uh, to see that there are threats out there that need to be countered. It seems that the U.S. has a more aggressive approach on this than Canada does. Well, I mean, look, the two countries uh, operate in in different ways, you know, at the same pace and sometimes the same way when it comes to um, issues to do with Beijing. Obviously, Washington, um, you know, they've been trying to steer this relationship in the right direction. It's obviously gone off the rails even earlier this year when we had the spy balloon matters, um, you know, kind of pitting Washington and Beijing against each other. But again, Joe Biden has made it very clear that not only does he want a relationship with China to work, but he's not going to put up with any kind of antics from China. Look, we saw the U.S. military actively get closer to China by setting up bases in Southeast Asia. So this is simply just a way for them to not exactly kind of stick handle or, or, or strong arm another foreign power because they, they understand that China can operate the way it operates. But if China wants to operate within the norms of society, um, the U.S. is going to do what it can. And if, you know, that ultimately steers how Canada is going to do it, then the U.S. can say, look, we started something here. Uh, does China seem to have, uh, uh, does it harass the United States as much as it seemed they seem to in Canada? Obviously, we've got the two Michael situation up here, uh, allegations of election interference and such. Do they Do they put the boots to the U.S. as much as they do to Canada? I mean, look, it's possible. Uh, you know, there there are economic kind of um, tensions between the two countries. There are political tensions, obviously, between the two countries. There are the way that China has interacted uh, and continues to prop up Russia, which obviously rubs the United States the wrong way. So even if there's not kind of overt actions by China that are being picked up on the radar and kind of put out there publicly to what they may be doing to Americans or people on American soil, it's the way that that China operates. Um, as part of a kind of broader global conversation um, that the United States wants to keep an eye on. And look, that 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 relationship that China and Russia have with each other is obviously one of the most um, you know difficult things that the United States is trying to deal with right now. And again, if it can keep an eye on what's happening within kind of the walls of Russia, uh, rather of China, um, it gives it a better opportunity to try to stay one step ahead of the game. And I think ultimately that's what any government is trying to do when there is an aggressive, you know, hostile nation or aggressive kind of, you know, foreign nation, um, you know, trying to step on its toes. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global tonight. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Happy Friday. All right. Uh, Canadian Conservative Member of Parliament Michael Chong testifying with to the or at the United States Congressional Executive Commission on China. When will he get to do that in Canada in the form of a public inquiry? Wouldn't that be nice? 
If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've been talking about affordability and uh, inflation and interest rates and such for quite a while, and obviously it is a major concern to Canadian families. Uh, a new StatsCan report is out and said the economy stalled this year in its second quarter. Uh, is this good news? Is this bad news? Does this mean, is it news at all? Uh, does this mean that we could see a pause on rate hikes, uh, which, of course, this, this discussion again happens uh, later on, the, I guess, next week now. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is here now. Ian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well, thanks, Scott. Okay, so how how uh, big an issue is it that the it appears that the economy is stalled in the second quarter? Um, it is a big deal. On the one hand, it's it's this is going to sound really like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. I'm not. We want to cool down the economy because inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. So that's good. Uh, but then at the same time, uh, who gets hurt the most in in when an economy slows down? And this has been studied to death. It's basically young people, you know, their last in, you know, last hired, first fired, you know, that sort of thing. And they don't have the savings because they haven't been working long enough. It's not because they're not hardworking. It's not because they're not prudent. It's that, you know, people like me, I've been working for 40 years. So I've had lots of time to save up. Older people have had time to save up. And so I think increasingly what we're seeing is this is a very interesting time we're going through. There's a real generational difference. Older people, I've seen the data, I've got the data from StatsCan, older, and I'm talking the boomers, we have a very large net worth, many of us have paid off our mortgages, we're not affected by the interest rates, so who's getting hammered? It's young people, and it's showing up in the polls too, by the way. They have lost faith in Mr. Trudeau. And uh, I mean, I talked to my goodness. I talked to my own children. I talked to uh, uh, children of my friends. And uh, there's a real pessimism, a real almost sense of despair uh, with young people today that they're falling further and further behind and they don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. It's amazing how quickly those numbers have changed just in the last uh, few weeks and months and such. What does this mean for the Bank of Canada rate? Uh, Hold steady. And I know you can't predict this, but what are your thoughts? I, I will because not because I normally make predictions and I'm certainly don't gamble. I don't go to Vegas. I go to Vegas to listen to music, not to gamble. I don't ever gamble when I go to Vegas, but I do read I believe me, I read the every speech because they publish them on their website, uh, the governor of the bank had and the deputy governors. And they're not just gossipy things. They're very, just filled with facts and figures and charts and graphs. And and you get an insight into what they're thinking. And and I think I, my sense is and the market, the markets are 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 discounting a rate hike in September, which is the next scheduled date of a, of a decision. And which is imminent. And I think that they will sit on on the uh, uh, meaning they won't do another rate increase uh, because the numbers are contradictory. As you know, the economy is slowing down and and inflation is coming down, although you get into that whole you know debate. Is it core inflation, peak inflation, blah, blah, blah. But I, I think they're going to sit on this uh, and not rate, raise rates to see for the next two months or so until the next scheduled decision, whether these numbers are biting. Uh, in other words, is the economy continuing to cool? And if so, they may not have to put through another rate increase. 
It really seems that Canadians, and, and usually, you know, Ian, this stuff's in, in the weeds for most people, but it really seems that Canadians now, you're talking about anecdotally speaking with young people and such, they're really starting to question policy, whether it's on housing, yes. whether it's on climate yes. change. And again, not that they don't care about these issues, it's just whether the policies are working or not. I, I completely agree. Um, my my frustration for the last several years was that, um, uh, you know, the government would announce various policies and I was in very dis- strong disagreement in my conversations with you. Um, you know, I said, for example, that they drove interest rates far, far, far too low in 2020 yeah. when the pandemic arrived. They should never have gone down to a quarter of one point. Mr. Trudeau should never have stood up at the microphone and say, go out and borrow, borrow, borrow. Rates have never been so low and they're not going up. And I was screaming at the time saying, don't say that. That's wrong. Don't do that. And then they pumped two thirds of a trillion dollars of stimulus into the fiscal stimulus, even though they should have only focused on the 15% of unemployment during the pandemic who really were suffering. Instead, he gave it to profitable corporations. He gave it to people that hadn't lost their jobs. And I knew that the chickens were going to come home to roost. At the same time, he was applauded and cheered. And everyone said, hey, this is fantastic, Mr. Trudeau. But now the chickens are coming home to roost. And I think now people are saying, wait a minute, these policies are not working. And we are paying a price. And so I think there's a lot more skepticism and willingness to challenge these policies that I did not see that see that from uh, large numbers of Canadians in 2020 or 2021 or even in 2022. So I, seemed- I think this is good news. We need checks and balances. We need our leaders to be challenged on policy, especially when the numbers are going the wrong, when they're going south. It seemed, Ian, that, you know, when times were good, this is all about what team you were on, what color you were, whether you're this side or that side. And now it seems to be less about uh, party politics and more about what are you doing for me now? What have you done for me today? Where's the result? I agree. You know, there's a great line by Warren Buffett and uh, the multi-gazillionaire investor from Nebraska. And he said, you know, when the tide goes out, and he means when the economy goes south and goes into recession, he says, you find out who has been swimming in the nude. (laughs) <laughs> and we're finding out who, which policymakers, politicians have been advocating snake oil as opposed to policies that work. We're mm. finding out who is swimming naked. And I think this is a good thing. Dr. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, uh, Carleton University, New Stats Can Report, Canada's economy stalling in the second quarter. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great long weekend. Same to you, Scott. Thanks very much. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. This uh, Monday, of course, the Labor Day Classic, Ty Cats, Argos. Uh, what more can we need to say? Tim Hortons Field, Labor Day Classic. It will also see Dave Foxcroft's final game as a referee in the CFL. Pretty cool way to go out. And joining us to discuss being a referee and the parent of a referee. And, you know, we, we should say we did try to get Dave, but show you what a pro Dave is, what a professional, how focused he is on the game. It's not about me. It's about the game. So, uh, no, I'm not doing that. I'm busy and, uh, you know, maybe later. So that's that's dedication. So uh, what do you do? Well, I guess you find the next best thing. So let's call on dad, Ron Foxcroft, Canadian businessman, Fox 40 World, creator of the Fox 40, uh, Fluke Transport, 40 Ways of the Fox, you know it all. Oh, honorary colonel with the Argyle Regiment, chairman of the Argyle Commemorative Fundraising Campaign, uh, NCAA referee, storied career. I think that's it, unless I want to read the book. Ron, how are you today? 
I'm doing terrific, Scott, and I want to compliment you. You you summarized it excellent. Dave, uh, being from an officiating family, an officiating background, wanted the focus to be on the Labor Day Classic, the CFL, and the two teams that are involved in the in the CFL. And and Scott, you know, in in a game, uh, when you officiate a game, and you go out of the game, and nobody noticed who the officials were. That's a good game. That is a as opposed good game. as opposed to when you do one and they chase you out of the uh, out of the stadium field, whatever. That's exactly right. You know, I'm I'm just news. Dave's big news right now, but he would rather be big news after the game next week, Scott. And I'm sure he'd be delighted to come to you and talk about the game and talk about the experience. But he got some great mentoring advice. You know, one thing about. Um, officiating it's a very very tough industry it's a very very tough job a lot of travel always tell people find a mentor find a mentor that's going to give you the straight goods when you mess up they're going to tell you when you've messed up and and when you've done a good job they're going to compliment you and give you some advice so way back in 2008 before the famous jake ireland worked what was his final cfl game He said to Dave, he said, Dave, this isn't my final game. This is my next game. Mm. And I'm going to prepare for that game just like I would prepare because, number one, Scott, it's a privilege to referee a game. We're not the show. We are absolutely not the show. It's a privilege to referee the game. The players, the coaches, uh, particularly in the CFL, they do that for a living. So you have to yeah. respect that, that they're doing this for a livelihood and, and they in turn deserve your best. And so Dave, uh, very professionally, was not slighting Scott Thompson by no, not no. coming on your show today. Believe me, he was absolutely in his own uh, professionally uh, preparing for his next game. Now, obviously, Scott, we all know it's his last game in the CFL, and in particular, he wants the focus to be the CFL, yeah. not the refs, not Dave, because also he has a responsibility to his crew. He's the yeah. crew chief, and um, wouldn't it be uh, awful if if some of the members of his crew thought, well, Dave's not focused. This is his last game. He's going out, and um, this is not important. On the contrary, this is very important. It's his next game. It happens to be a very important game, the Labor Day Classic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a nice party to go out on. And again, it's like he doesn't want the distraction either. It's like, don't come to me and talk to me about this. I'm focused on that. I, I don't want even right. people going up to him and saying, congratulations, whatever. It's just, no, not the time, not the place right now. No, that's exactly. And, you know, uh, you, you made a very good point. As a parent... <laughs> It's very difficult. I have watched every single one of his games in um, 22 years, and that's over 300 football games. And and we talk after every game. Uh, The the CFL, Canadian football, is my very favorite sport. As you know, Scott, we've been to a basketball game. Basketball is my business. I love my business. And when I go to work, it's not going to work. It's going to have fun. But in the CFL, I don't have a responsibility other than 
cheering for the officials. So uh, Dave and I have never missed talking after every game. We discuss key plays. We discuss turning points. And we discuss game flow. And we discuss when you have to be aware that the, the flow of the game is changing and so on. So that's been a lot of fun for me. But as a parent, uh, I remember his first Grey Cup, 2008. It was in Montreal. I sat in the stands with Roy Green from CHML. Mm. And Roy turned to me and he says, why are you so nervous? And I said, well... Oh, yeah, are you kidding me? It's like having a kid that's playing goal. I mean, yes. I was just thinking that. It's like the worst thing that a parent sitting there watching their kid play goal is to, what, have a referee? <laughs> and then you know, <laughs> you people know, say, Ron, what was that call all about? I've often said to parents that have a, have a child that's a goalie, that's tough. That is... Yeah. A, what a great comparison. So he came out of the tunnel in the Montreal Olympic Stadium to referee his first Grey Cup. And it was the same tunnel I came out in 1976 when I wow. refereed in the Olympics in, in mm. Montreal. And I came out of that tunnel for the opening ceremony. And I remember viv vividly coming out of that tunnel, not very nervous. Watching Dave come out of that tunnel on his very first Grey Cup, uh, working with an amazing crew, I was never so nervous in all my life. And anyway, <laughs> I said to Roy Green, I said, Roy, I'm more nervous than I've ever been in my life watching. Well, fast forward to last year, I knew Dave was thinking then about um, moving on the next right. season. We had talked about it. So I sort of had a feeling that this might be his last Grey Cup. And I sat with the uh, lieutenant governor, the retired uh, lieutenant governor of the province of Alberta, and our former prime minister, Stephen Harper, and the mm -hmm. lieutenant governor, Lois Mitchell. And they both turned to me and said, Ron, you are so nervous. And I was, Scott, as, as a parent. Now, fortunately, Dave's crew had an outstanding game. Just a, an amazing game. It was an amazing game to watch. Winnipeg and Toronto, they came right down to the last minute, and there were block kits, and there was a correct uh, face mask call against the Argos. And uh, it was just, it was one of those games where the referees had to be in at 100%. And I never felt, A, so nervous, and after the game, so proud of uh, my son Dave, number 30. So I'll be there Monday, and uh, I'll be sitting with the commissioner of the Canadian Football League. And uh, I always cheer for the officials, though, Scott. For total uh, clarity, I always cheer for the officials and hope that uh, – they have a good game. They don't get hurt, and uh, nobody notices them. Good point. That's the key. Yep, not even, uh, nope, doesn't even know. And you know what? I even though it is Dave's last game, I'm sure he would prefer you waited till after the game to congratulate him. Ron Foxcroft with his Canadian businessman, Fox 40. Uh, you know the thing. He's here now. And, of course, uh, Dave Foxcroft will referee his final game, Labor Day Classic, at uh, Tim Hortons Field against the Argos and the Ticats. Great way to go out. Ron, have a good time and try not to be nervous this time.
Okay, always a pleasure being with you, Scott. Thank you, Ron, and we'll have Dave on next week. We talked about this earlier on in the show, and we've talked about it for weeks and months, and that is the alleged Chinese interference, Chinese Communist Party's interference with Canada's elections and such. That's what led to the David Johnston thing and a public inquiry, which we're all still waiting to see when that uh, takes hold. But it's odd that the U.S. seems to be more interested in this than we are. And they're asking uh, uh, MP, conservative MP Michael Chong to come down to a U.S. Congressional Executive Commission on China and testify and give his information, whereas up here, still crickets when it comes to a public inquiry. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus, China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, and here now. Gordon, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Thank you, Scott, for asking. So your thoughts on this and the U.S. Uh, asking Michael Chong to come down and, and testify at this commission, and, and should we be doing the same? Are we? Well, first, question first, um, it's not usual for a Canadian official or politician to testify before a, a foreign congressional body or legislative body, but it's not without precedent. And we have such a close relationship with the United States um, economically, but increasingly in terms of of our um, security as well. Uh, I think it's something that's uh, um, desirable, better understanding between the two. Um, the second question, ought we to be um, paying more attention in legislative terms to China? Well, it's certainly picked up already. There is a special House of Commons committee, as you know, and other committees of parliament have taken up the question. But um, how long they run and how close they cut to the bone uh, still might be in question. What is a good thing about this U.S. congressional body, which was set up when the U.S. decided to allow, to agree to have China join the WTO, part of the compromise at the time was to set up two committees, one to deal with human rights in China, the other to deal with economic and, and uh, security issues. This is the human rights one. And it's bipartisan by nature. It's got equal numbers from the two leading parties uh, so that the domestic politics usually stays out of it to a great extent. And they have some people from the... Um, executive wing there as well. So I like the formula. I like that it's within the congressional system, and yet it's not controlled uh, by the party in power. So I think you get, I think a more balanced, you can get more balanced give and take. Will this testimony from Michael Chong in the U.S., could this help with information or exposing things to Canada, uh, to Canada and the Canadian case? Will it help? It can't hurt. I think for one thing, Michael Chong, who is a senior member, of the uh, conservative party and a likely future minister should the conservatives be elected, um, he'll get come away with a better understanding. For our American cousins, I think it's useful. Uh, they will have no shortage of their own uh, experience, and they have right now some people who are um, facing serious court charges on the basis of of interference, in part those elusive police station stories. Uh, but I think that they'll get an added perspective from one of their neighbors, an ally, as to what the Canadian experience has been. And it's unusual that you can have a senior official, sophisticated, um, speak to the issue when that person has themselves been a direct target. That's perhaps a bit of a distinction. Usually these people are not quite as prominent um, or as well-known. I, I can't see any harm coming from it. Uh, we shouldn't have exaggerated expectations, 
but I think it is, on balance, a good thing. Does this put pressure on Canada to have its own public inquiry, ASAP? Well, there's a story that's not that refuses to die. Um, <laughs> you and I have talked about this. It seems like eons ago, it was a long time ago, earlier this year, uh, where we had convinced ourselves that this was something that was going to run. At least I'd convinced myself that something was going to go forward. And not for the first time, I was wrong in that. And it's caught up in delays that I find hard to comprehend. It really is a time, I think, for bipartisanship to come to the fore. Um, we are all Canadians. All of those MPs are Canadians. Uh, they ought to be able to get together in an organized fashion under an agreed person, even if it's no one's first pick, and, and get the roll up the sleeves and get going. At the end of the day, are you being generous, Gordon, in the sense that it, it, it's up to the government to do this, not the opposition? So, again, um, uh, call the inquiry, then fight over the details, I guess. But it seems as if they keep pushing it over the opposition to just to dilute the conversation and punt it down the field. I think you make a valid point, to be honest. Uh, again, I admire the U.S. system, where that particular congressional body is by definition bipartisan. It can do things, uh, not at the instruction or uh, ha doesn't have to do things over the objections of the government. Both are involved. Um, it, does, uh, one more it does have the sense that they're ragging the puck, that by mm. delay, they either hope the issue will go away or it'll be overtaken by other issues. Um, and quite frankly, there may even be a calculation that if there's sufficient delay, and a parliamentary inquiry does, is, is a slow-moving beast, that it might be so so slow moving that it's overtaken by the next election and its report or its findings would not then be known. That, I don't say I know that to be the strategy, but there is a risk that that is what will happen. All right, totally unrelated. We only got a few seconds left. I uh, can't let you go without asking your thoughts on our environment, uh, environment minister heading to China to give them a lesson on climate change. Well, I'm in favor of dialogue. The Americans, the, the Aussies, the the French, the Germans have all been sending ministers, in some cases prime ministers or presidents. Uh, I don't think it should be. It must not be celebratory. Um, we have to be prepared for tough talk, uh, give and take. Uh, we can't fix global environmental situations with the Chinese being on board, and their, their emissions get worse every year, despite promises. Uh, so I think there is merit in going. But it, but it should be transparent to the Canadians, um, not to have press in the meetings, but it's got to be some tough, frank talk behind closed doors. Absolutely. Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus, China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta. MP Michael Chong set to testify in the U.S. and Executive Commission on China. Gordon, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thank you. The same to you, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. All the conversations around the uh, green belt continue and lots of debate should be had. But another thing we can't lose sight of is that we are in the midst of a housing crisis. And if you honestly think this debate about the, uh, the green belt is going to end uh, with this government or uh, with the new session or with the next crisis du jour, you're wrong, because if there are. If there is a shortage of housing now, virtually across every demographic and every region and every area and such, it's only going to get worse for the next 5, 10, 15 years till we catch up. So the green belt discussion shouldn't be ending now. It should be just beginning because 
If this is an issue now, it'll be an issue 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. Let's bring in Pratasa Hader, Professor of Data Science, Real Estate Management at Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Murtaza, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Thank you for asking. So your thoughts on what's transpired to, uh, this week around the green belt, obviously, and, and I know you're not a, a, a poli-sci professor, but uh, obviously a lot of politics, a lot of chatter going around. Uh, many thought the housing minister would resign uh, after the the integrity commissioner and the auditor general's report and such. Uh, but the reason that he is staying, from what I can decipher, is this isn't about the minister. This is about the process, and the process is flawed, and there there needs to be some loopholes filled and such. Is that? Do you see it that way, or and can you tell us anything about this process and how it could be flawed? I think the process is not flawed, but I my understanding is it wasn't followed. Mm. Um, the ministry um, has a big, uh, large contingent of public servants who are experts in their respective domains. Um, and are responsible for advising the um, politicians and elected officials about what to do and what criteria to follow. And if that was the process and followed, and that pro- if that process was followed, the outcome would have been, I believe, different at this moment. It was just everything is going down to or going back to just one person, and that one person has uh, resigned. But the question is, um, is this the process that the entire decision-making is in the hand of a non-elected, uh, mm. non-public servant official in the in the Ontario government? And, and that's not the process. I think the process wasn't followed. The right thing to do for the minister and for the sake of housing in Ontario is to for the minister to make way for a new face mm. so that we can keep our eyes on the target and the target is to build more homes as long as he stays in this portfolio the controversies around this this green belt will continue and the debate will move from the need to build more housing as to why certain individuals have so much influence in the office of the ministry and that that's not good for our ability to be able to deliver on the very mandate that the Ford government and the Ontario government has identified for itself for building 1.5 million homes. That is difficult to do if you keep the leader of, of that portfolio that is who is mired in controversy. Um, so that's my stake. And I think the the that just it's not one person's fault that this if this is wrong and i'm looking at the report one report is 160 pages long that's the commission uh, the integrity commissioners and the other one is the uh, 90 pages long report these are very detailed accounts of what happened what they did who the who did what and i think it's 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 important for ontarians to spend some time and read the two reports because there's a lot of material there for us to understand how these transactions took place uh, I, I, that's great advice, but I'm sure they won't. Um, it, what can you tell us that we are missing or that the public is missing? I think, well, at this moment, I would say what, what is missing is that uh, we are losing sight of the real challenge, which mm. is not about the minister or not about one or, or, or his chief of staff. Right. The real challenge is that we have not built enough housing. So. 
what we need to do, how, where do we find land, and how do we build upon it, requires us to follow rules and regulations that are in place, not to circumvent them. And that's the thing, that if you want to do the right thing the wrong way, it ends up being the wrong thing. And mm. that is where we are in Ontario. What we are missing is losing sight of the challenge that we have. Look at Hamilton, look at Ontario, look at Toronto. The population increase is predictable and has increased in a predictable fashion, but then increase in housing stock over the years has remained stable or declined. I mean, look at Hamilton. I was just looking at the data today. The increase in stocks is only for multifamily residential, the single family detached or single detached homes. That starts, those starts have declined over the years, which means that you're building more apartments, but not family-oriented housing in Hamilton, Ontario, so the CM Census Metropolitan. So, so what does it mean? It means that we are not building family-friendly or family-oriented housing, neither in Toronto, nor in Hamilton, nor in Oshawa, and that is contributing to the increase in housing pressures. Demand for housing is increasing, prices and rents are increasing, and in the middle of it, we have got this controversy, and 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 as long as it remains controversial, the Ford government will be off its message, and I don't I don't see that as a good thing for them. I would agree with that one hundred percent. That being said, is it about the minister? Or is it about the green belt? Um, where does the green belt discussion fit in this? Because again, every of all the debates about whether we should be doing this or should we be doing that is again, as you're suggesting, is taking the attention away from the goal or the task at hand, which is getting us out of the housing crisis. Well, at some point, Ontarians have to decide how how strictly they would like to adhere to this green belt, and um, and is it is it something that cannot be touched forever? There's a review, I believe, it's going to happen in 2025, and by that time, we have to figure out if the entire green belt is green area and and pristine green land, or parts of it are already built and may. Maybe maybe ready for for development. They may already be serviced by infrastructure that's roads or, or or sewer pipes and water mains. So so a lot of this debate has to happen as to what are the trade offs for this for the city, um, for the region. At some point, you know, and I remember this that some thirty years ago, when you would cross, um, if you're heading to uh, Ontario's uh, Ontario's Wonderland. Um, and north of Steel was green, green space, yeah, all of yeah, it, right? Yeah. And yeah. they were, and and then you're driving, and there's nothing but green space and green land and open land, and then you see those um, the 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 rides in the in the in the far distance. Now, when you drive to the Wonderland, um, you you it seems like those those yeah. rides are coming out of somebody's attic because housing yeah, is yeah. built right yeah. at, to the to the to the edge of the Wonderland. So eventually those areas were built and and city expanded and this debate about growth will not go away um we just have um we this this whole this whole controversy has just created this this environment where the where the discussion about housing and more housing is on the side and now we're looking at and in the integrity of the process and and what else is happening and it's not going to help the ontarians debates about how to grow where to grow when to grow um mm. need to happen but at the same time the processes that the system has set in place the checks and balances they have to be followed i'm i'm, I'm 
I'm mm. very forceful about growth in housing, but I'm not saying that this should ever happen. At the at the, at the there's no trade-off between integrity and growth. That trade-off does not exist. We have to do things properly, scientifically, and and by by having this ugly incident, I think the debate has been has been taken uh, off where it should be focused, mm. and that's on how do we build more housing that we need. Martaza Hader with us, Professor of Data Science, Real Estate Management, Toronto Metropolitan University. The debate, the controversy around the green belt continues. We have had this discussion a bazillion times on this show, and every time I talk about it, uh, people just shut me down and go, no, it's not going to happen, not going to happen, not going to happen. And as we continue to see the Prime Minister's numbers just just plummet, and it's virtually in, he's down in all areas, all regions, all uh, areas, demographics, what have you, and especially amongst young people who were his sweet spot for the longest time. So, you know, I, I've honestly been asking for months if this guy is going to walk away, if he's going to take the walk in the snow as his dad once did, or perhaps, you know, a, a nice walk along the beach in uh, in Tofino, who knows? Um, and and continually I hear from academics and poly size, what have you. No, he's, he's going to stay till the end, which is amazing considering that most people want him to leave, including perhaps members of the party. Uh, it's the rumblings you hear uh, coming out of uh, from behind closed doors. But will he do that? And is it time for somebody to pull him aside and say, hey, you're a detriment to the party? Let's bring in Tasha Carradine, journalist, writer with the National Post and her uh, Substack page, in my opinion, and author of The Right Path. She is here now. Tasha, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, thank you, Scott. You too. So, you know, we've been talking about the walk in the snow, the walk anywhere, please, uh, for a long time now. And everybody, nope, nope, not going to happen, not going to happen. Are these latest numbers going to, I'm not sure we're going to change the prime minister's opinion, or uh, but what about everybody else in the party? Uh-huh. Well, that is a million-dollar question. Would people, you know, knife the prime minister or push him out or take him aside, as you said? And I'm not sure that anyone right now will do that uh, for for the simple reason that Justin Trudeau still has a very strong hold on the party. And as we've seen, if you cross him, you will be punished uh, or you'll just be let to dry, you know, hung out to dry. Um, and uh, so I have a sense that people are waiting for him to make the decision. And the question is whether he will, you know, look at those numbers, as you mentioned, and say, well, OK, at a certain point, I better go because otherwise it's just I'm going to lose. And, you know, why why go out on that note when you can leave office and then, you know, go on to other things without losing? Why would I do that to myself? Um, I don't know if his ego will let him do that, but I think it would be a smart move. Probably. Does he have a does he have a stronger hold on the party than he does the country? Um, Well, (laughs) I would say that it. It would appear so. I mean, the polls are really, really bad. Like they are just, they're all trending the wrong direction. And as you said, the young people are leaving him. So that's why we're seeing things like the party trying to, and I I said this a couple of days ago, I said, they're going to go full Trump. That is their whole thing. The one card left to play is try and conflate the conservatives with the Republicans in the U.S. and all their issues. And, you know, you saw that travel advisory this week, um, you know, for the LGBTQ plus community and say, don't go to the U.S., (laughs) Wow. Okay. I mean, I, you know, Florida did get within the United States an advisory from a couple of LGBT plus uh, Q plus groups that said, don't go to Florida for their reasons. Um, But it didn't apply to all of the U.S. It was just, it was just so, I was thinking, why would you do this? Okay. It's politics. 
it's trying to say like, look, you know, we're, yeah. we're the party of inclusion. We're, we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. They're like DeSantis, Trump. Like, I mean, you know, come on. Um, it's getting desperate. Uh, that being said, uh, at what point does it get to before someone does pull him aside? How much farther do they have to go? Uh, because let's be honest, these did trend suddenly, and many are saying just because of the pace of this and, and what we're seeing in, in, in the broad scope of it all, that this is going to be very difficult to turn around. Uh, it will be difficult to turn around as long as the economy is bad. And I think that the, you know, the praying for the economy to turn around is, it's a dicier thing. I mean, there has to be an election um, by 2025. Uh, there could be one earlier because he's in a minority. So it's, it's a different situation. If you remember, Brian Mulroney, um, 1993, was at 15% popularity. He had, at one point was actually at eight. It was that bad. But then he bounced back to 15, which was still bad. But he was in a majority situation. He decided to leave, set a leadership process in motion, and he still left, you know, left with his head high. He never lost an election. Um, in, but he didn't have to worry about being kicked out um, by, you know, a non-confidence vote. Here, there is that risk. So if the opposition smells blood, but it has to be the NDP that smells it. And they're not smelling it right now. So it's not so clear that someone will, will take him aside um, and say, hey, like, you know, it's time for you to go or else we could be defeated. We could be, they could just do a non-confidence and they'll you know, go after us. I don't think that's the case because right now, nobody on the left wants an election. It's, it's not in their interest. Are, are Canadians now figuring this out? In other words, this is less about party or the team that you're on. Because, again, there's, to me, like Trump, you're either on this side or that side. And, and, and to me, JT's just the, the left version of that. Uh, very, very divisive. But it seems people are now, uh, you know, I'm not content with being on a team or saying I'm extreme this or extreme that. What are you doing for me? How is this helping me? Has has Why has this changed so quickly? Obviously, it's affecting people and they're questioning the policy. Well, I think, like I said, it's, the economy is bad. Um, people are unable to find housing. People are losing their homes. Interest rates are high. Um, now, interest rates are not the purview of the prime minister, right? He doesn't set them. Yep. The Bank of Canada sets them. The, the accusation is, well, all his spending and all the inflation has caused the bank to raise rates to try and dampen the economy and the housing market. It's his fault because he let that happen. There is some truth to that, but it's not the whole truth. And I think that, you know, the, the people this summer has been one of major discontent because all these issues have sort of sort of crystallized at the same time. And people feel like the rhetoric that the conservatives did, everything is broken. It's finally it's setting in. It's very clever. And that feeling of, of sort of hopelessness transfers to the prime minister. He's the symbol of the whole thing. And he's been around for, I mean, what is it, eight years yeah. now? It's a long time. People get tired uh, of you. <laughs> people say that all the time, but they don't get tired of you if you're good. All right. Um, <laughs> as you said, uh, you know, they're, they're constantly looking at the U.S. to say, look, this is what's going to happen here if you let the far right in. Is anybody stepping back and taking note that while he preaches about the far right, he is the far left? And he's taken this once great left of center party and drove it right into the left ditch. Because simply his partnership with the NDP, if that doesn't prove he's more left than center or far left, what does? Uh, I think he was far left before the NDP came on the scene. In fact, <laughs> this is the argument. Bill Morneau and a number of other business liberals, as they would call themselves, 
felt alienated even before Morneau left because he was very frustrated. There was no focus on budget balance. There was no focus on uh, prosperity and growing the economy. It was all about spending and all about you know rectifying wrongs and um, making yeah. good with different groups that had been underrepresented. This kind of, and the problem was they were doing it by throwing money at this. And you know he was frustrated. Others were frustrated. So Trudeau has taken the party farther left. Um, under his watch. And Christopher Freeland is a big part of that. She wrote an entire book about the subject, Plutocrat, before she got into office. That was the blueprint for their their economic policy. And it was all about, you know, the uh, the basically taking down the elites. Well, <laughs> the irony is, of course, the conservatives say, well, actually, you're the elite over there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to take you down. So he is he has boxed himself into a corner. I agree with you. And he's his his public now, his constituency is very far left. And people in the center, people who are business liberals, people who, many of them feel like they, they don't have a home anymore, just like a lot of red Tories don't feel they have a home anymore. There's a whole bunch of homeless people that I think aren't even engaging either way because they feel that there's no point. Good point. Uh, where's the center? Tasha Kiridan with us, journalist, writer, uh, and everything else, author of The Right Path. Tasha, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thanks so much, Scott. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer for the last word. Danny sends this email. Justin might be good for the party, but the polls show the show. He's like Putin, dumb and stubborn. He thinks he still is the dream boy. The sooner he gets uh, booted, the sooner the country can rebuild. Oh, yeah, and the federal liberal party is going the same way as the provincials. Down. Looks good. Keep right except to pass. (laughs) 